In tonight's gospel reading, Jesus is walking in the temple in the Feast of Dedication, uh, which you likely know better as Hanukkah, when he's surrounded by people who want to know, are you the Messiah? Are you the one who is going to rescue us? Tell us clearly, because we need salvation. And, and I wonder, as you heard tonight's gospel reading, have you ever found yourself like the crowd saying something similar to Jesus? You're in the middle of a situation and you want to know, Jesus, are you going to rescue me from this? And so I also wonder, what do you make of Jesus's answer to this question? Because his answer is surprising and even shocking. Uh, it certainly shocks those who ask the question because right after this, in the part of the passage that we didn't read, people pick up stones to attempt to kill Jesus because he committed blasphemy by saying that he and the Father are one. But Jesus' answer to the question flips the question on its head. Because Jesus claims that he's one with the Father, and because of this, he will provide eternal life for those who are in his care. Instead of saying whether or not he's going to join the Jews and whatever their plan is for salvation, um, probably salvation from Roman oppression, instead of joining that, he invites them to be his sheep, to be part of the bigger and better salvation that he's offering, a salvation that goes far beyond political independence from Rome. I also imagine that for many of Jesus's listeners that day in the temple, in addition to being shocking, Jesus's answer is disappointing. They wanted Jesus to provide a specific type of solution to an immediate pressing problem that they had, this problem of Roman oppression. And instead, Jesus invites them to let go of their idea of what salvation ought to look like and instead enter into his plan. And I wonder how often we also feel this way. How often do we want Jesus to provide a specific type of salvation to rescue us from a particular set of problems on our own terms? Um, and I know that I, I feel that way often. Um, I've been wrestling with that even as I've been preparing this sermon. Um, some of you know, and this is a, specifically to me, but some of you know that five years ago I, I left a tenure-track academic job. Um, with no plan for what would come next. And I cannot tell you how many times I've been like, God, you know my address. You can send me a five-year plan. Like, it's in my mailbox. I, I would love that, right? Just give me a specific way forward to this. Um, because that, that's what I want, right? Like, I, I want that specific plan. Um, and I've struggled, right, with letting go of that and stepping, joining in Jesus in the work that he's doing. So I'm wondering if, if some of you are in that similar position or have been in that position. Because I think, fortunately, as challenging as Jesus' answer is, it's also an answer that provides us with a way forward. Because when we see Jesus' sheep in this passage, Jesus' sheep are the ones who listen and who follow. The sheep are the ones who are willing to set aside their own plan of salvation and instead join Jesus in his bigger, better plan. So tonight, let's explore together how we hear and follow a Messiah who offers us a salvation that is far bigger and far better than what we can imagine, and who invites us to join him in that salvation. So as we start to dig into this scripture passage, 
I want you to take a moment and come with me into the scene that John describes, because John situates this, uh, this scene in a very particular time and a very particular place, and I think both of them are important to understanding both the question that the Jewish people are asking and the answer that Jesus gives them. So walk with me for just a moment in the temple on a cool winter day. Um, if this has been last week, we can imagine cool and gray and rainy. It's not, it's a little different outside today. Um, it's a cool winter day. And Jesus is walking along the covered porch um, that's known as Solomon's Colonnade. And this is a part of the temple that, according to common belief of the time, had once been part of the temple built by King Solomon. As we're walking with Jesus, the porch is sheltering visitors to the temple from occasional periods of drizzle, while also reminding them of the glory of Israel under King David and King Solomon. And this covered porch is sheltering more people than normal right now because it's the feast of the, the festival of dedication, right? What we know as Hanukkah. And this is a holiday that celebrates Jewish independence. So there's an air of excitement right? Um, because any festival, there's going to be excitement as people are gathering and celebrating. But I think there's also a swirling undercurrent of tension as we're imaginatively in the space with Jesus. Because this festival celebrates when the Maccabees rededicated the temple after they had thrown off Greek rulers and established Jewish independence. And now, this happened about 170 years before Jesus, um, and it had been more than 100 years since the, Jewish had, since the Jews had come under Roman rule. It happened in the year 63 AD, or BC, rather, for my history nerds, um, under the Roman general Pompey. But it's still not that distant history for the Jewish people to remember this time of independence, to remember this time when they threw off Greek rule. And so you can imagine that in the temple at this time, there's the, the celebration from the festival, but there's also this political tension swirling in the air as they're celebrating an independence that they no longer have. And so the crowd in the temple, I imagine too, they're already excited, already maybe a little tense, already full of anticipation, and they notice and they surround Jesus. And surely some of these people um, know almost nothing about Jesus, right? A crowd is gathering and they're like, hey, you know, something interesting is happening here. Many of them have probably heard something about Jesus and they're curious, they're genuinely curious, right? Who, who is this Jesus? Is, is he really the Messiah? Some of them have maybe been following Jesus for a while and they really want Jesus to be the Messiah. They want Jesus to be the one who's saving them. And some of them are also the religious leaders of the day who are not so thrilled at the idea of Jesus being the Messiah. Um, they don't want that threat to their power. Uh, maybe in a more positive light, they don't want the possibility of an armed rebellion and then Roman retaliation, which uh, would be devastating for many people. But in this setting, as we imagine the temple and the set and the time and the crowds around Jesus, when the Jews ask Jesus, tell us, are you really the Messiah? The question that they're asking is this, are you the one who's going to release us from Roman oppression? Are you going to address this specific problem? Are you going to provide us with the salvation that we think we want right now? Even those who don't want Jesus to be the Messiah or who are trying to bait Jesus into saying something that can then get him into trouble, they still are thinking of his Messiahship in these terms, in these terms of release from Roman oppression. 
And so when Jesus answers, the que- answers this question, he's pushing back really hard against this question that they're asking. Uh, he's saying, you're asking the wrong question, or you have the wrong framework for this question. I'm going to give you a much bigger framework for this question. Because he answers, answers with these words, and if you look in your order of worship, you can follow along. This is verses 25 through 30. I have already told you, and you don't believe me. The proof is the work I do in my Father's name. But you don't believe me because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me. For my Father has given them to me, and he is more powerful than anyone else. No one can snatch them from the Father's hand. The Father and I are one. Now, there's a lot that we could unpack in this answer. Let's start at the end. Because instead of promising liberation from Rome, Jesus declares that God has given him the immense power. And I mean, think about the immense power to give his sheep, to give to those under his care, eternal life. Not just political freedom from Rome, something that lasts for a short period of time and gets really complicated anyway, but life everlasting in the loving care of God. Jesus is saying that he loves his sheep and he has the power to care for them in a way that goes far beyond the salvation the crowd around him is imagining. Jesus is offering a salvation that is different, but it's far bigger and far better than what they want, what they think they want, at least. But even as Jesus says that the salvation he brings is not what the people are asking for, and not the solution to what they see as their immediate problem, Jesus still does remain really deeply sympathetic to the needs of his people, to the needs of his sheep. Because if you notice, the proof of who he is when he begins to answer this question, the proof of who he is, the proof of the power that he has to provide eternal life, lies in the work that he does. And and what is that work? That work is feeding the hungry, healing the sick. In the next chapter of John's Gospel, we see him raising the dead. It's the power to forgive sins. He's bringing relief from pain, relief from oppression right now where the people are. Jesus is bringing this eternal life that he's giving to his sheep, this kingdom life, into the world now. Which means that even as we may long for our full salvation in the future, we also know that Jesus cares for our needs right now. And according to Jesus, he's also addressing this question of of who is it who's receiving this salvation, right? Who is receiving this salvation? And it's his sheep. It's the ones that his father has given to him. And his sheep are the ones who listen and who follow. They're the ones who hear Jesus' invitation to this salvation and are willing to enter into this work alongside of him, even if it doesn't match with what they thought they wanted for their own salvation. So as we walk through this interaction between Jesus and those who are asking if he's the Messiah, I wonder if you recognize in yourself, um, as I certainly do, the tendency to ask Jesus to enact your own plans for salvation instead of setting those down and joining Jesus in his work. 
And I would guess that every one of us in this room, like we're, we're like those people in the crowd who really do want Jesus to be the Messiah, who really do believe that Jesus is the Messiah, right? I'm, I'm not uh, calling anyone out for not believing that. But I do think that sometimes we get stuck in our own ideas of what Jesus' salvation should look like. And then we become frustrated when salvation doesn't take those forms. And in fact, if that happens to us, uh, we pretty much are just expressing our sin nature. Uh, the, great, uh, the great fourth and fifth century theologian Augustine writes about this as a manifestation of original sin. He writes that our loves become disordered. And so we love God for what God can do for us instead of loving God for who God is. And so if you recognize yourself in this group, I just want to say two pastoral things to you before I go on um, as, as we prepare to hear both the hope and the challenge in Jesus's word. So first, and I hope this was clear earlier, but it's certainly not wrong to ask Jesus for help in specific situations. This is something we see over and over in the Bible. And in Jesus's own answer, uh, he clearly cares deeply about the needs of his sheep, of those for whom he cares. The problem comes instead when we begin to demand that Jesus give us the help that we want on our own terms not when we simply are asking for Jesus's help in specific situations. So I just want to make that um, completely crystal clear. And the other thing, and, and this, it, this would have been floating in the back of at least my young adult brain as I read this passage, um, because this was a concern of mine, that if I'm wondering about whether or not Jesus can actually provide salvation, doesn't that mean that I'm not one of Jesus's sheep? And I will just say that if anyone who doubts is not one of Jesus' sheep, Jesus has basically no sheep, right? Um, the Psalms, the whole Bible are full of many, many examples of people who are asking this question. So if you find yourself asking the question, Jesus, can you really provide this salvation? Um, you're in very good company. Apostles, psalmists, all sorts of people throughout history, Mother Teresa, lots of people. Um, and not, th this is not disqualifying you from being one of Jesus' sheep. So I just want to offer you that assurance, mostly because I would have loved to hear it when I was 12 years old. Um, but wherever you are tonight, what I want you to hear in Jesus' word is both the promise and the challenge that Jesus has for us. So the promise is that Jesus not only loves us deeply as our good shepherd, but that he also has the power to grant us eternal life. Eternal life with God and the fully realized kingdom of God. And this is a salvation so big and so good that it is difficult to imagine, but that just means that it's better than anything we could have come up with for ourselves. And maybe tonight, that's what you need to hear. You need to hear this promise that you are safe in the hands of your good shepherd who will never let you go. But maybe you also need to hear the challenge that this bigger, better salvation requires that we let go of our own ideas of what Jesus' salvation ought to look like, and that we reorient our loves so that we are not loving Jesus for what we think he ought to do for us, um, but rather for who he is, the good shepherd who cares for us in ways that we don't even know we need. So how can we, if we need to, reorder our love and reorient ourselves to the Savior Jesus really is? How do we receive the comfort of his promised salvation? And I think, again, the passage gives us an answer as Jesus describes his sheep 
Um, In verse 27, Jesus says, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. Jesus assigns two verbs, right, two actions to the sheep. They listen to the good shepherd, and they follow him. And what might this look like in practical terms? So listening um, comes when we read scripture, when we pray, when we hear sermons, when we talk with our friends. Listening happens when we're willing to set aside our expectations and hear what Jesus is saying to us. Um, And here, uh, I'm departing slightly from my script because I just got back from a clergy retreat where our theme was listening. And, And they talked about listening in four different ways. Listening with our ears, right, which is typically what we think about. But also listening with our eyes, listening with our heart, and listening with our full attention. So when I say listen, um, try to imagine that in in the broadest possible sense, right? Um, You might listen, you might hear God speaking to you through a painting, through a nature walk, right? Through beautiful music, uh, through fellowship with your friends, right? Listening can come in in a whole variety of ways. Listening is, is like noticing in this. Where do you notice God at work? I will also say, um, if listening is something you want to do better at, spiritual direction is incredibly helpful um, in a practical term. This is a church full of spiritual directors, so if you don't know one, turn to the person next to you in your pew. And they are either a spiritual director or they know someone who is. So, um, But in, in all seriousness, though, like it, it can be really helpful to have someone there with you to listen to God. Following, obviously, is really closely connected to listening, right? Because you can't follow if you don't know where you're going. Um, So we follow where we hear the voice of Jesus leading. And sometimes we think of following in terms of taking really big steps, right? But following can also just be like those tiny, tiny decisions you make throughout your day. Um, It can look like the decision to answer kindly when you would prefer not to. Uh, It could look like inviting a neighbor over for coffee. Um, It might look like letting that political argument just slide right on by in your Facebook feed, right? All of these things uh, could be parts of following. And as we, as we come to, or as I come to a conclusion, I'm going to offer an example of listening and following from my own life that I hope you will find helpful. I'm always a little hesitant to do this because I don't love talking about my private life to all of you. Um, and also because the story isn't finished yet, like I don't have a nice narrative conclusion to it. Um, but again, I, I feel like, uh, I hope, at least, that this will be um, a helpful picture of what listening and following can look like. So as I mentioned at the beginning of this sermon, um, I've struggled a lot over the last five years with um, disappointment and frustration as I left my academic job, um, and then just uh, disappointment and frustration with a lack of clarity of my path going forward. Um, But in those five years, I've learned a lot about listening, like just paying attention and listening. So here's, here's the part of the story that I'm going to share with you. About four years ago, um, Mary, our family pastor, and Sandy Richter, who's now uh, planting a church in Oak Park, um, but was on staff here at the time, um, knew that they needed to find a new person to be the family ministry coordinator, because Sandy was stepping into the role that I have now as the pastor of adult formation. Um, And as both of them prayed and listened, they heard my name which is weird, Um, because as far as they knew, like they didn't know me very well. I'd been here for about a year, um, and as far as they knew, I had no formal ministry experience, no interest in working with children, like no reason that God would be speaking my name. Um, And so when Sandy 
talked to me about this initially. She broached the subject by saying, you're probably going to say no, but, um, and then I did indeed say no. <laughs> what Mary and Sandy didn't know though, was that I had been hearing a voice that I thought maybe was God, but I thought maybe God was just like completely mistaken, um, pointing me in the direction of formal ministry. And so Sandy asked me, and I said no, but then I, I, thought about, I thought about what she had asked me to do, and this opportunity to come on staff, and I thought about this voice that I had been hearing, and I'm like, God, I'm kind of sure you're making a mistake in asking me to do children's ministry. Um, but it seems like that's what you're asking me to do. And so when Mary talked to me about it a couple of weeks later, I, I didn't say no. I said, tell me more about this position. Um, and so I did. I came on staff at Savior, um, and I, I worked with Mary and uh, was able to just soak in her really beautiful vision for intergenerational worship in the church. Um, I even uh, found that I enjoyed spending time with the children in the church, which is great. Like, my, my degree is, I have a, a PhD in English literature, right? Like, 17 was, I think, my floor previously for the age of people who I wanted to teach. Um, but I, I really enjoyed it. And from there... As I've listened to God myself, as I've listened with Brad, my spouse, as I've listened with the people on staff at Savior and, and many others of you, I've been slowly learning to hear and to follow that voice. And again, I don't have a tidy end. I don't know what the conclusion of the story is. Um, but I'm really glad that I took that step and listened and followed. Uh, so I hope that that is encouraging to you. Because as I've listened and followed, and as you are listening and following, I know that we all begin to better see and love Jesus as the Savior he truly is, and not just the Savior who gives us what we want in the moment. We all know that this is not a one-and-done sort of discipline. You can't do it once, and then you know, you're good. Um, even as Jesus' sheep, we're prone to wander and fall into loving Jesus for what he can do for us. But I invite you, as we come to the end of the sermon tonight, especially if you thought of an area where your tendency is to remake Jesus into a Messiah on your own terms, but even if you just are in the place where you want to listen and follow Jesus as a sheep, I invite you into this work as we discover together, both individually and as a church community, that Jesus is a far bigger Savior with a far deeper love for us than we could imagine on our own. Amen.